welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird, and as always with Sam Backer, we got a twofer for you this week. Dropping a little late, but you get extra content. On today's episode, Sam will be talking to Eric Weisbart. He's an American music critic. He's also a professor of American studies at the University of Alabama. He's written a number of books, including the 33 and a third that came out in 2007 on Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. And he also wrote a book called Top 40 Democracy, The Rival Mainstreams of American Music. Uh, It won the Woody Guthrie Award for Best Book on Popular Music in 2016. And that is the topic in which Sam and him will be discussing. Sam, why did you want to talk to Eric about his book, Top 40 Democracy? I, I thought that this was a really, really cool book because what it basically does is take something in, a, in, a, in the classic format of, of shit that appeals to me, takes something that people talk about like it's simple and makes it mind-bendingly complex. Hell yeah. <laughs> and basically, he... In this book, he really interrogates the kind of the history and and the kind of uh, structures of what, on the the face of it, might seem like a really simple cultural category that is like top forty music, yeah, or the term or the term mainstream. And and if you think about top forty, it really quickly, you know, on the face of it, it seems self explanatory. It's the top forty. But as soon as you top forty, what top forty albums, top forty artists, most popular songs. But then you're like, wait a minute, most listened songs. Yeah, like, radio. Yeah, ra- what format? What are we talking about? Most popular exactly. songs ever are like <laughs> the top forty most popular songs this <laughs> yeah. week. Like, right? And like, that sounds like it sounds right. like I'm being facetious, but like I'm very much not. And in particular, top forty is is a radio format, and it's a radio format that has done a, a lot to shape. American popular culture or American popular musical culture um, by in some ways like putting the outlines around like what is or is not going to be heard by vast audiences. But it's also a, a, a set of really what he argues is like a set of categories and a set of categories of kind of different mainstreams that connect and overlap and influence each other and that by taking a, a really hard look at like what he calls like the like the center of the american musical landscape instead of this like instead of this homogenous mass which is usually how it's talked about he actually shows and explores how it's like a much more complex articulation of, of, of different like the title says <laughs> rival mainstreams and i feel like he really explores like how formats kind of determine like what stream of that mainstream its services or is like a platform for. I think it kind of really gets at the heart of how some of these terms like mainstream, which we are all guilty of throwing around, are just not easily defined kind of as you said. And I mean, Sam, you know, you and I recently were talking or rather going into a deep text message conversation, not about music, but about just the term culture and what it means when someone says or claims to be a part of some specific culture and its relation to how like cultures develop and the question of authenticity and if there is any kind of real authenticity in relation to ideas of culture and like I see some similarities here 
like when discussing the term mainstream or top 40 and like whatever that really means. And I, you know, as we kind of concluded in that the deep text message conversation, deep in it, the it's deep and insufferable. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's complex and depends on context and can mean something different, not only for an individual, but kind of maybe how this book also illustrates can mean something different depending on the format or platform it's presented on. I mean, I think that, that at the most basic level, one of the things this book is really good at getting at is the ways in which formats and audiences co-create each other, right? The idea that, you know, musical text, musical artifacts, right, recorded songs can mean one thing in in one context and then put up against a different set of pieces of music can mean something else. And that when listened to enough, let's say, talk about like classic rock, for instance, when put together enough, um, start, you know, all these rock songs that weren't classic rock songs until they got stuck into a classic rock radio format, played next to each other for a thousand years. And then all of a sudden, classic rock is a sound, almost like a reverse engineered sound that exists in the world. And then new bands can sound like classic rock. Yeah, yeah. I want to know what you think about how this kind of relates to the now. And before I let you answer, I'll just say, particularly because I feel like we're in a sort of moment in which maybe the ecosystem of music is kind of reformatting in a sense. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't use the word reformatting because that means formats and platforms and everything. But I guess like just to tell like a little like personal tale, when I was in my like late teens, I remember like Modest Mouse got big and started getting radio hits. And they had been a band for almost a decade, if not more before that, with like plenty of albums and like largely considered, once again, indie or underground, these like loose umbrella terms. And it didn't ever seem to be attempting to fit into some sort of like radio platform. And then they were on the radio and they kind of still sounded like Modest Mouse. And I think as we've learned since, like there was a great sort of reorienting of what we considered underground going on in the early aughts. But as a listener and a fan, I was kind of like shook because platforms, as I realize now, carried a lot of weight in regards to like where you fit into the musical ecosystem. And as a result, had an effect on like me and culture and well, like how I was trying to form my identity and then kind of like understand my place as a subject, aka consumer, <laughs> as a young adult in America. And I feel like that's kind of something's happening again where you kind of have like you guys talk a lot about radio, but the question I kept having was like, how much does radio matter now? And also like, how does it like, what you guys are discussing relate to just the plethora of formats like TikTok and Spotify and like whatever else it may be that's happening right now? No, totally. And and I do think that like that, that story about kind of like Modest Mouse and radio formats is really interesting because it, it we talk here on the show a lot about record companies and the things that record companies do to shape markets. Two episodes ago, we talked a lot about how in some ways like posthumous albums are co-creations between record labels and the artists. But what, what's interesting about specifically thinking about radio and radio formats is like this is another set of companies and institutions that are also in this process of cultural creation that create formats that then artists are situating and record labels are situating themselves within and against in this kind of constant back and forth dialectic. And, and 
I mean, as to your point about radio, like, yeah, I do think that, I mean, my gut is actually that radio is less important than it used to be, but more important than anyone on Twitter thinks it is. <laughs> yes, 100%. I, I, was, I agree with that. I was going to, I was going to, I was going to say something similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, my, my gut is that radio is still, I mean, extremely important for, I mean, huge parts of American liter- listenership. But but I, I do think that also what we've got now is like a new set of intermediaries between record labels and fans and that they present their own set of formats in ways that are interesting and in some ways that challenge like what a format is almost. Because I mean, I would I would maybe say thinking about some of, of, of extending this in, into the present is that like, whether platforms are formats or, or rather like to, to rephrase the question, like how do platforms and formats connect? I mean, yeah. you do have something like getting heady here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but you know, you have something like um, SoundCloud rap, right? Which is a mixture of a platform and a format that then other people could make music as part of because the, the, the platform and the musical style kind of grew together. And so that's, that's one example. I mean, but also you have kind of like these mega platforms like Spotify that are more or less intentionally trying to create their own formats, right? These like mood playlists where basically they're saying this is a vibe that our market tested data says works, says that people are interested in. And then artists are very intentionally creating music that is attempting to fit that vibe now what's interesting about that then i guess is lots of times that's presented in this kind of like um it could be a little bit chicken literally you know what i mean the sky is falling like a genre is being destroyed or like this utopian thing is like genres are being destroyed like genre is bad and the future is like a music that crosses musical borders but like what's cool about this book and and what you'll hear in this conversation is like there's more continuity maybe than a lot of times people think that you have things where there's a pretty close relationship between a radio format and then artists making music for that format. And that artists are also then very specifically attempting to hit like the radio equivalent of a big playlist. Right. So like you'll have, um, we talk about it a little bit like the Isley brothers who are making early tracks for a kind of pre sixties top 40, right? So that's kind of like a post Sinatra smooth sound switch to a rock and roll sound because that's a new format continue for a while unsuccessfully to try to make records that fit that format and then hop on to a new generation of black radio stations where their stuff finds this like extremely long and like we've been talking we've we talked about in, in a previous conversation like extraordinarily aesthetically productive groove and they release like frankly one of the best like runs of records of any artist <laughs> i think but it, it fit it, it, in some ways that's that's a story that you could imagine being told about an artist navigating between various categories on spotify yeah, and I guess you can. You've seen that illustrated a little bit in kind of in a previous episode that that uh, with another author in which you discussed the book God Inc. When it comes to sort of like Christian 
radio programs or like labels or like am I a Christian artist? Are you like a secular pop artist? And like artists having to kind of move between uh, those two sort of circles. But I think I'm also interested in sort of the way in which artists then sort of react to that. Because you say you have like artists that are like purposely maybe like trying to create music to like fit into like say these mood playlists for Spotify, which side note, I'm not quite sure how many are actually doing that. I'm skeptical of it. I'll have to do some more research. But it it is interesting though, is that like the power of Spotify is undeniable and it is I I'm more sort of curious also about how that plays out in culture on like a fan based music listener level and then how that plays out in regards to music being made that is maybe reacting against that in a sense and i just think that that's kind of one thing that you know you can kind of pull this thread and it just kind of keeps unwinding and like you know you and eric don't talk about this that, that much but it just it plays out i think on like so many different levels you know and it kind of what i was going that's what i was trying to get get to going back to my modest mouse uh story where you know them being an underground band maybe on certain labels even from a certain region had certain cultural weight and like that began to alter when they suddenly were on a different format and in on radio and like you know getting i don't know videos on mtv or whatever no 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 that that actually totally makes sense and this is also maybe something says something about um uh the change i think that spotify does reflect right which is that so you were in the pacific northwest at that period of time mm-hmm. right and that is where modest mouse is from right i also like <laughs> i got very into modest mouse as like um a much younger teenager yeah um and had they had and this is precisely what goes to what you're saying right about what it means to switch formats is that Modest Mouse had no regional affiliation to me at all. I did not know what part of the country they were from. I didn't really have a context for that music. They didn't strike me as like part of a broader set of bands. And that that's one of like the promises and like losses of moving between formats, right? Like you're a band that exists within a specific context it's you're being played on like the like what Seattle uh, or Portland like yeah. indie stations among other bands that kind of sound like Modest Mouse as part of a local scene. But I bought Modest Mouse in a Circuit City <laughs> where it was one of four. This is also like a time capsule moment. Yeah. <laughs> I bought uh, uh, Good News for People Who Love Bad News and Yankee Hotel Foxtrot the yeah. same day right. with like high school job money. Yeah. Um, as like a 13 year old being like, I am now going to be an indie kid. This is my identity this week. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's exactly what I'm driving at. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm driving at. And and, and it's interesting because I guess like, you know, on, in some of those scenes, like that regionalism or that those loose umbrella terms like indie or underground or whatever even start you know these streams since we're talking about streams like start to spill over into like how you orient yourself in the world and like how you like maybe feel about you know politics or social issues or whatever and like you know it's the classic like sell out like conversation which you know you know is 
<laughs> not worth exploring. But, you know, it, there was something, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're slipping into our cultural conversation that we were text messaging about, but there was something more about just listening to Madis Mouse and being a Modest Mouse fan. Like there was other things attached to it. You know, just like you said, you walked into the Circuit City, you bought one independent record, one record on a big label but from a band that had like had a pass on independent labels and suddenly you were an indie kid because like pitchfork was giving it like best new music or whatever and like that held cultural weight no matter how vapid or like empty it is it kind of mattered the format in which they um were presenting were being played or where they were presenting their music and you know it's funny because you say circuit city and i would even say like you can go in an even deeper level if you get into sort of like hardcore punk or even like sort of like really obscure emo where i couldn't get that at a circuit city so then it becomes like what's the brick and mortar store that you go into where you can get this stuff and then that you know plays out as well anyways we can definitely pull this thread for like (laughs) forever but i just think that that kind of adds a little bit that adds a little bit more context to the kind of conversation in which uh, you had with Eric and especially when you think about things like, you know, to bring a full circle, like TikTok and Spotify and like, you know, the radio and like everything else that like, you know, all the other ways we can access music now. It's easy to notice when like cultural meaning is being created by a large corporation, when it's in the content, a lot of times, like when it's in the structure, it's much more difficult to spot. And I do think that one of the, one of the fascinating things about this book is like the way it, kind of unpicks all of these structures that I had never thought about really before. Like going back to Modest Mouse really quickly, Modest Mouse would have sounded different had like college radio stations not existed as a simultaneous like format and kind of description of sound. And similarly that also, you know, that uh, I wouldn't have heard them maybe in the same way had they not had a radio hit on a format that also had distinct ties to age, right? Like they're being played on a stations that target 12 to 20 year olds and not 22 to 33 year olds. And and just back, back to the Spotify thing and, and something to think about. And then I think we'll, we'll like cut it to the interview is like, while there is con, while there are continuities there, I feel like what's being lost when by the fact that everyone's listening to the same spot of you know the mood playlist chill moods is not chill moods pacific northwest like salmon flavored (laughs) it's you know it's and and the thing is that as much as these formats you know structure listening as we'll talk about especially in this pretty amazing um kind of case study of like a cincinnati uh radio station that helped create classic rock like they're very much not just tied to like a mass demographic but it's like a demographic in a specific place and there's a local a sense of local negotiation with radio that everyone's listening to the same dial now on spotify and that dial can get like really micro focused but it's like one huge dial and there used to be different dials and that seems to me to be like maybe the most substantive change. Yeah, it's something to lament the loss of, even if Spotify is trying to sort of recreate it. Because I think that there are playlists that are probably like locale specific. But even then, even then you can get into sort of more detailed nuances in, in which there, you know, that loss in which you express is like still there. 
But I think we'll wrap things up there. Uh, before you hear the interview, just another reminder, please sign up for our newsletter, moneyfornothing.substack.com. That's the number four. You could also email us with questions, critiques, spam, whatever you want at moneyfornothingpodcast at gmail. And also please rate and review us so we could spread the good gospel of Money for Nothing to the listeners out there. Here is Sam's conversation once again with Eric Weisbard, author of Top 40 Democracy. Here comes the music. Enjoy. This book confused me like in the best possible way <laughs> in that it, it took a lot of stories and narratives and structures in American music that not only have I kind of always taken for granted, but have also kind of talked about and in some cases written about um, and made me look at them seriously and think about the ways in which I, I didn't necessarily understand um, or had kind of overly simplified the dynamics within them. And 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 so maybe to start off, this is a book in many ways kind of centered around uh, formats and in particular radio formats. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could start off maybe by just explaining like what what is a, a radio format and, and why does it offer such a useful uh, vantage point to uh, understand American music? So for many, many music scholars, the end-all and be-all is either the artist or the recording. But from the perspective of show business and entertainment in general, the key concept is the format, because without a format, you don't know how to stage your show. So it's a show business concept that could apply and did apply to things like variety shows in the earlier years of entertainment. For radio, or for television for that matter, format would be a way of understanding what's happening within a regular ongoing program. If you have the Johnny Carson Tonight Show, that's a format. You have a monologue at the beginning, and then you might have guests and a, a musician at the end. It's a structure that lets a mixture of different things work together and the audience is satisfied and gets an understanding of what is expected, and it makes them feel comfortable with the cultural experience they're having. Now, where this becomes a particular way of talking about music is in the 1950s, television essentially stole radio's reason for existing. It was radio first that had network programs syndicated programs with their own kind of formats. If you were Kate Smith and you had a show on one of the ABC, NBC, or CBS systems, you might get 15 or 30 minutes each week. And the understanding would be you'd do two patriotic songs, one cover of a current song, and then move on. Suddenly radio has this big hole to fill. Television has taken all the programs radio switches to the format of disc jockeys playing records morning, noon, and night. 
how do you structure something that's seemingly so open-ended? That's the story I'm telling in this book, how over time, radio stations learned to format American music in different ways. It started on AM radio with top 40 music playing more or less all the hits, and then alongside top 40, a kind of middle of the road approach aimed at older listeners and playing older songs. In the 1970s and 1980s, almost all music radio switched to the FM dial. And at that moment, the real formatting of American music began. You had five different formats that collectively each represented a different version of American mainstream entertainment on radio. You had top 40 still. Um, You had adult contemporary, which was the next way of terming middle of the road. You had rock radio. You had rhythm and blues or soul R&B radio. And you had country radio. So you had five different formats of American music. Suddenly, that means there are many different ways to get your music into people's consciousness, to make it mainstream. And the multiplicity of the mainstream is the main subject of my book. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a, a lot of really fascinating kind of dynamics, even, even in what you just said. And one of the things that, that really struck me and that I never quite thought through before is the kind of... Um, the peculiarity of radio, of, of, of music radio, is that it goes from kind of national, primarily national networks where uh, the same kind of programs are heard in a variety of stations to kind of locally, or for a while anyway, locally selected, locally instantiated, you know, uh, reproductions of nationally available consumer products. It's like very weird in, in To a me, way. the essence of radio is its ability to normalize your experience of culture through constant repetition. If I hear a K-pop song these days through a YouTube video, I'm getting one kind of experience that almost invites me to quickly click through and find more information out. Radio had for decades, really, this much more slow-moving way of gradually getting you accustomed to something, giving you the same song over and over again, so that for many people, it's almost impossible to remember the first time they've heard a hit song. A hit song can almost be defined as something that you can't quite remember when you first heard it on the radio. Um, so So that quality of radio in particular makes it really flexible. It's something that can at different moments mean different things. It can, and and some of what I try to do in the book is show some of those different meanings. It can be a space on top 40 for closeted gay performers or immigrants to sort of gingerly test out their identities in the world. It can be a place for blackness to be reframed as a consumer culture. There's a lot of different ways that radio operates, but fundamentally, I think it's this notion that in some ways the podcast now is operating on that radio concept that through repetition, through the sort of essential calmness of radio, um, a lot of different 
ideas can be put forward. Yeah, and it's also, as you point out, the ability of it to construct a mainstream. Like we did a, an interview um, in an earlier episode with, with uh, the historian Brian Ward, who's a historian of, of, of radio and of, of uh, the civil rights movement in the American South. And one of the things he talks about uh, in, in R&B, and, and one of the things he talks about is that you can't, anyone can pick up a radio signal, that its ability to cross, even as it's constructing certain kinds of identities and boundaries, it's also its ability to cross those boundaries, like physically, right? Like you could pick up a signal from far away. You can pick up a signal from the other side of, um, of town, from a different community, allows it to create new kinds of mainstreams, uh, I, I think, um, in ways that uh, maybe other forms of, of musical transmission couldn't. One of the things that radio does really well is it's built around several songs interacting with each other and creating a vibe. In some ways, to use Marvin Gaye as an example, radio is less good at a straightforward political song like What's Going On, but radio is great at a mood setter like Let's Get It On. That whole notion of quiet storm radio, for example, that a song like Let's Get It On was definitely part of, was about how sustaining a romantic mood on late night R&B stations, or for that matter, um, the syndicated uh, radio host Delilah these days playing weepers on adult contemporary stations. Um, I mean, she's a trip. I've like, <laughs> she gives great advice in fairness. And that show has gotten me through some very long car rides. Aww. I have a lot of respect. <laughs> so I think, I think that one of the challenges for this project and for people who may see the view of pop music I'm presenting as upside down and backwards is I'm less interested in radio's ability, sort of the Brian Ward model, to achieve great civil rights rebellious moments and code messages to protesters saying, hey, get across town right this moment, there's something happening. I'm more interested in what radio at its sleaziest, its most homogenized, its most mainstream can accomplish. Because I actually think that it does a ton of work in just redefining the normal, redefining how we experience music at a different moment in time as part of the texture of our life. And that's a kind of cliche, but radio makes that cliche into something active because if you get the tone of a commercial station wrong, viewers, sorry, listeners stop keeping you in their presets. So the single thing that radio programmers learned to do year after year, even less than that, quarterly ratings report after quarterly ratings report is understand what that potential listener thought they were going to hear before they even turned the station on. And that's all about collective sound, vibe, mood, whether the sense of this place as a place to go to resonated with people. Yeah. 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 And I love that idea of, of the radio station, like as a, as a place, like as a sonic location. I also want to go back to something I think that you said or, or, or gestured towards earlier that's really important and was like critical for my understanding of, of this book um, is that you kind of you said a format was an understood space that could allow a variety of different acts within it. And and I feel like that that's this fascinating tension at the core of a lot of the dynamic, a lot of the developments that you chart here, right, that that these formats need to be well defined enough to have a vibe, to be a, a, 
a place, a satisfying place, one that listeners know even before they turn on the dial, like you said. But they also need to, at their best, have a diversity of sounds within them. And that can create this constant tension as uh, as those two dynamics just can kind of pull a format in opposite directions play out. Yeah, it's really tricky. It's a, it's a kind of managed eclecticism. And the rules of the format are different with each format. So the more you get deep into country music, you understand that there's this tension between country music, the genre, where a lot of people love the sound of country music and believe that there's an authentic sound that's real country music. But they also, at least some of them, are invested in country as a format because they're rooting, for example, for the South to do better economically. And they take pride in the notion of Southern progress through the rise of Southern radio. So in the process, in that format, you get these tensions between hardcore country, which feels like it's satisfying the genre people. And that could be anything. That could be Merle Haggard, but it could also be the Dixie Chicks singing Long Time Gone about why Merle Haggard's not getting played enough on country radio. And they sing that like almost literally two months before they're kicked off country radio altogether. Um, So you could have the hardcore version. You could also have people who are just pleased as punch that Shania Twain is sharing space with Martina McBride and is sharing space with Garth Brooks and is sharing space with Alan Jackson, and that this notion of new country represents moving country music just enough forward that it can challenge any other format. That's only one story for one format. The point is that within each format, there is a logic that knits certain things together and resists other things. And so there's a kind of two-part approach to understanding commercial radio. One is to just start with an understanding that this format system for many decades was in place and getting a sense of why a professional radio programmer could easily move from one format to another format. Then you want to, within the different categories of the formats, see why each one is a little different from the other. And when you do that second move, you start to get into the social history of music, how music, even in this most slick and commercialized of settings, is still hitting people where they live. As a, as a podcast about, in some ways, the, the political economy of music, I like absolutely love this approach. And, and, one, and in particular, the ways that uh, this is a history in some ways this is a history that in many ways um, really made me think and I think is situated in a way to make one think about the kind of centrality of certain kinds of narratives about rock authenticity and anti-commerciality in that even if like I no longer buy into them, I was struck by how many kind of evaluations of dynamics in other genres besides rock I had kind of viewed through that lens. And I think that that what's really amazing about this book is the way exactly what you say is the way in which your understanding of, of kind of the commerciality of radio and its social history, it's not, it doesn't have a social history despite its commerciality. It's a social history because and, and through that commercial promise. The framing metaphor I use throughout the book is you drive into a city 
and you know there's going to be stations devoted to all the major formats. You live in a city and you have, depending on your taste, you could have presets for each of the different ones and that can be your experience. Now against that, yeah, you have things like rock and in some ways, arguably, we're still coming to terms with what rock's most authenticity-driven arena rock fans meant. I saw someone in the last day or two positing, is there a connection between the rock fans blowing up disco records in 1979 and the Donald Trump people in Washington on January 6th? And you could make a strong case that what we think of as the aggrieved white angry law, you know, defender of make America great again is weirdly in a lineage with the arena rock audiences of the early 1970s. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's absolutely true, but certainly one of the things that happened around rock in the 1980s. So it was really part of the Reagan era was classic rock coming to very much keep a certain set of listeners away from new sounds. It locked them in to a sound of rock that then remained in place for decades afterwards. Um, I think that was a pretty significant moment. And I think that another sort of intersection of this format world and politics is what happened to AM radio when FM took all the music away. So, so radio goes through two periods, poor AM radio, right? It goes through two periods of absolute strip mining. First, television takes all the network programs away. Then FM radio takes all the music programs away. So what does poor AM radio do? It takes advantage of that same 1980s moment, in this case, 1986, I think, when the Fairness Doctrine is repealed and basically just employs talk radio DJs um, to fill every spot on the AM dial that they could. And those talk radio DJs also bring a format approach to radio. In their world, the driving issues of the moment, can you believe what the Dixie Chicks said about George Bush last night in London? It's outrageous. Those issues were the equivalent of hit songs. And talk radio applied a format approach to politics. So to kind of get into uh, a little bit of the, the subject matter of the book, um, and you've got a whole bunch of different chapters that kind of trace different histories, kind of like Rashomon, like, right? Like almost similar periods of time from different perspectives. And I want to start <laughs> with, in, in some ways, the chapter that is like the, the mainstreamiest of the mainstream in, in a world that, in music that's always been bizarre, I think, to anyone. Um, and is certainly familiar to anyone who's ever dug through a used record bin. And so I'm talking about A&M Records, um, and specifically Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Whipped cream and other delights. Which is, for those who haven't seen it, is a memorable record cover. But these and they sold a ridiculous number of records. Um, and in some ways... I had always thought of this as this kind of like weird exotica curio, but you kind of positioned this band at the center of a kind of complicated popular music, though maybe not pop music evolution. So I'm wondering if you could just start by telling us who Herb Albert is, who the Tijuana Brass is, and kind of how sure. they fit in 
to uh, the 60s. Herb Alpert is a Jewish trumpet player from Los Angeles who in the early 1960s has ridiculous multi-million album sales success, creating a persona for himself as the band leader of a Tijuana orchestra that plays a kind of Mexican-ish sounding mood music. And none of it makes any rational sense from an authenticity perspective. It is complete show business costuming, but it's also somehow just lively enough that it attracts a mixture of the kind of people who would wear Beatles wigs and the kind of people who are actually Beatles fans and a record label is formed. The A in A&M Records is Herb Alpert. The M in A&M Records is his business partner, Jerry Moss. The label is started in 1962. And as the decades go on, this record label realizes that selling safe, centrist, mainstream music is a goldmine. They have the Carpenters, they have the Captain and Tennille, they eventually have Sting. They are experts at crafting the gooey middle and just people want that over and over again. Their problem is almost always the music they connect themselves to has a kind of rise and fall dynamic. It's, it's schlocky and people turn on it all the time. So it's almost never lasting. We don't go back to the Captain and Tennille looking for Frank Sinatra-like artistry. But in the process of staying in the middle, what A&M does as well as anybody is they change that middle. When they start, a la Tijuana Brass, they're part of middle of the road music, that AM category that's the older complement to top 40. As the 70s and 80s go on, adult contemporary replaces middle of the road on FM radio. That sounds like a bland piece of renaming, but what it really means is that stuff like the Eagles or Billy Joel or eventually Mariah Carey can be the new center of pop music's aging process. And in that, what happens is essentially so many of the popular music upheavals that we associate with the 60s become bread and butter cultural fodder for all Americans. They are the ultimate example of mainstreaming. If every chapter in my book is the, is a story of a mainstream expert, A&M are the greatest mainstreamers of all. And um, for Jerry Moss, it was basically like, um, forget pursuing artistic greatness. This was more like picking the right horse and having that horse win the Kentucky Derby. That's what he wanted out of his pop music acts. He called it also hitting a home run. And it does in some ways. It, it's a complicated history because it, it gets at the, the, I would say, the seismic shifts created by the 60s in places outside of the epicenter. I mean, it seems to me that kind of, uh, you know, you think about Beatlemania and then you think about 
like those people growing their hair long, you know, the 12 year olds in 62 or 63 kind of becoming hippies. And then, but I had never previously thought about like, (laughs) what about their older siblings? (laughs) What about people eight years, 10 years older than that? Or for that matter, what about their shyer friends from more impoverished or conservative backgrounds? I mean, these days, I would argue the artist from the A&M records years that has the most cult appeal are the Carpenters. Richard and Karen Carpenter singing these incredibly smooth, but in retrospect, almost creepy, adult contemporary, easy listening songs like I'm on the Top of the World. In their heyday, everybody at A&M Records viewed the Carpenters as a necessary evil, like they're paying for the whole label, but we really can't admit publicly that we like them. They're just too square. I felt so bad for the Carpenters reading this. I was like, oh man, even your label like hates you. Like that's a tough, it's a tough road. Yeah. And, and, and the irony is, again, I mean, if anybody is going to come out of that period with some cachet at the end of the day, you know, 25 years ago, I would have said, oh, the cool A&M records stuff is the stuff that didn't sell. It was like, you know, some sort of Graham Parsons flying burrito brothers or Richard and Linda Thompson kind of thing. Some sort of marginal music that only people who became record collectors ever got a copy of these days at, you know, so many decades into the story, it can be the stuff that was ubiquitous that has the aura to it. And I kind of love that. Yeah. And it also, I mean, like you said, it kind of, it reflected the, the continued changes like the carpenters, um, you have an interview uh, with them where he goes like, it's, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I believe in premarital sex. I drink sometimes. <laughs> I like, I'm not, I'm not, a, you know, a, like a devout Christian. And that's right. a, that's a sea change in some, in some respects, yeah. but one that's almost like harder to clock. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing, the other thing that we should also notice about all this, because it relates to the theme of selling music is that, for many people in the music industry, maybe most famously that horny goat Walter Yetnikoff at CVS Records, um, being older and getting to take advantage of the sexual revolution with some free money or cocaine supplied to you by your record label and your position in the in the food chain was just, I mean, it was just the most decadent pleasure of all time, and and. I don't think we can ever underestimate how much that we might regard as being about some sort of innovative artistic approach to putting out records was really driven by these horny older guys who just found being at a record label in the 1970s and 1980s like the ultimate graft. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a broader reevaluation, I think, that that needs to be put, you know, that that reevaluating of large sections of rock history from kind of a post me too or music industry history from a post me too perspective i think is a conversation that we've had a little bit on the show but is one that is like going to be absolutely crucial to this kind of cultural history going forward i feel like and what's going to be even trickier after that's happened is then it's going to turn out that often people's worst impulses were intimately connected, and I do mean intimately, to their 
greatest cultural triumphs. So it's never gonna it's never gonna be pure. It's just gonna be, you know, subject to endless waves of recalibration. Yeah. I mean, I think that it operates on a lot of levels. I mean, one of the things that is in the initial framing of the book in the, in the introduction, but also is I think really um AM really gets you at is that this very commercial in some ways some often saccharine overly smooth you kind of call it the soft middle is also often the most sonically diverse style or most sonically diverse format um, along with top 40 that exists and it fundamentally changes it reflects america and changes america in a variety of remarkable ways these record labels learned over time that they did best if they were never left out of any boom so they were motivated to be the number two or number three presence in every conceivable submarket. And so what happens over the passage of time is their catalogs become the equivalent of tower records or something. You know, like our our vision of musical diversity, or at least mine, is like the Los Angeles branch of tower records with like tens of thousands of square feet all filled with vinyl and CDs of every imaginable style. And, and that's a record collector's heaven. But in some ways, the catalogs of these big record labels, as they literally went through every possible trend and subtrend, trying their best to milk it, it's a remarkable engine of diversity, just, you know, not for necessarily always good reasons. Yeah. You have this amazing phrase I'd never heard before in the book about second ears, that these all these record execs had first ears, which is what they liked, and second ears, which is how does this piece of music position itself in a broader landscape of music and who could it appeal to? And that precision and taste, which I feel like as a researcher for this type of uh, subject matter you have to develop yourself, is it's a, a weird, like almost like second remove art form all its own. That's a really nice um, analogy that I hadn't thought about, but you're right. So if A&M is kind of the, the center and M.O.R. or adult middle of the road or adult contemporary are these kind of almost like format, lifestyle as format, format as lifestyle, um, kind of fairly heterogeneous sounding mainstreams. Two of the mainstreams, and, and I think they're, they're interesting because they're kind of in, in some ways opposite stories, are the two mainstreams that in many ways are, are most closely tied to, uh, I guess you could say, genres with relative amounts of organic cohesion. It's <laughs> an awkward formulation, but once you start thinking about like, but formats create genres, but genres create formats, you start getting into this like right. uh, endless reflecting, uh, you know, endless reflections. And I started being like, well, what is real? <laughs> but so you have these two amazing uh, chapters uh, about, uh, kind of the Isley brothers and, and Dolly Parton. And in some ways they almost track opposite trajectories to one another. Mm. Right. Cause Dolly Parton crosses over and the Isleys cross back. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. So I'm wondering if maybe we can just kind of talk about this as the ways in which uh, talk about them together, thinking about like, what does it look like when a mainstream is also more or less a changing genre and how that mm -hmm. that shapes the kind of choices the different yeah. very different choices that artists have right i think that in the case of both 
the Isley Brothers and their connection to R&B and Dolly Parton and her connection to country music, we have to remember that these are the two kinds of commercial music streams that predate the top 40 radio system. So as far, if you go back to say, Carl Hagstrom Miller's book, Segregating Sound, he's already seeing in the 1920s and 1930s, the creation by record labels of different divisions within the companies aimed at selling hillbilly music or selling race records. So there's a long history in these two categories. And it's a history that sometimes involves staying within your, your audience, a Roy Acuff singing in the Grand Ole Opry. Sometimes it, it involves going outside of your audience, the Mills Brothers having kind of um, a level of crossover success in the era of Bing Crosby um, and being on radio and in movies even. And so for both of these acts, what they inherit is they come of age in a context where there's a prehistory around crossing over, connecting to your group, trying different things at different times in your career, going for the long haul and embracing a certain kind of, we can do anything for anybody depending on what's needed. That is very much the product of being from these two sort of marginalized groups with these deep histories as entertainers. So for the Isley brothers, they're coming out of this family background in the Midwest that involves the gospel music circuits, the beginnings of the rhythm and blues world. And their big hope is to be top 40 successes. When they have their song Shout in the late 1950s, it's played on every top 40 station and covered by a million people. Jimi Hendrix for a time works with the Isley Brothers. They think they're going to be rock and roll giants. Instead, they become staples of the Columbia Records Black Music Division for a lot of the 70s and into the early 80s, essentially being marketed almost exclusively to Black listeners, but with corporate financing, and they do very well. They do very well, not as crossover, but as crossing back. That's a pretty different story than the Dolly Parton story, where when she starts, 21 years old, signed to be the girl singer on the Porter Wagner TV show, her audience is almost entirely the most hardcore country fans who never have a thought about the rest of pop music. And for Parton, six or seven years later with I Will Always Love You, her farewell to Wagner, her goal was exactly the opposite, to not be confined to any format. And much of what has followed in her career has been a mixture of adult contemporary success on the Johnny Carson show, Barbara Walters interviews, the cover of Playboy magazine, you could argue, as part of that, appearing in movies as part of that. Sometimes musical success, but it hasn't been as much of her priority, ultimately. A lot of financial wheeling and dealing, philanthropy. And so now she's this icon, Dolly Parton. And what's interesting about it is, after all these years in the public sphere, in all these crossover roles, I think the thing that she is being ultimately sainted for artistically 
goes back to those years with Porter Wagner in the country music trenches before she achieved her dreams. So, you know, it is so challenging to tell these stories because on the one hand, you have these individual stories that are rich and span enormous ups and downs and upheavals within the group or artist's career. On the other hand, you have their relationship to formats. The only reason that the Isley brothers could have the success they did on Columbia Records in the 1970s is that now on FM radio, stations like WBLS, shepherded by Frankie Crocker in New York, you had a big enough corporate version of radio to then connect to things like Soul Train on television to create a black mainstream. Country radio was lagging a little bit behind in those same years. It wouldn't really be until the Garth Brooks era that country radio started to flex those same kinds of muscles. Once they did, for someone like Garth Brooks, crossing over was no longer relevant. So I wonder, I guess in both of those examples, um, if you imagine, if I'm literally imagining two streams, <laughs> like when is a crossover jumping from one stream into another stream? And when is it kind of bringing them together? Uh, and I just wonder, because I think about, um, you kind of talk about the, the multiple lives of the early Isley Brothers hits, where they're huge in the black community and in black listenership, and they mean one set of things, that there's this kind of uh, totemic animal house memory of these songs um, in white listeners, but that in some ways, when the Isleys, like you said, try to become rock superstars, either in that first go around in the early 60s, or I would argue that the run of 70s albums, um, it's, you know, the, the hardening of radio formats, the hardening of rock listenership means that really like spectacular, like long guitar, distorted guitar, post Hendrix solo jam out songs, which to me fit like next to all kinds of other rock music in that period of time, don't manage to cross over versus, I don't know, Dolly Parton, who sometimes seems to bring country and pop listeners together and sometimes also seems to hop between those streams. Yeah. We can play this game in a lot of ways. I was, you were talking about two streams. And I'm thinking, oh my God, do we remember Philip Ennis who wrote a book called The Seventh Stream on the Emergence of Rock and Roll? He, he, was, he had so many streams he was trying to deal with. He was streamed out. I mean, the mainstream, side streams, you know, countercurrents. It's, it's a lot of water under the bridge, I guess, at this point. Um, the thing about it is we always confront the question with culture of the individual work and the different levels of audience and parallels. So I can say the Isley brothers were never as accepted into the arena rock world as they should have been, especially they had given the music they were making, their guitarist, Ernie Isley, who's an amazing guitarist. There's just no reason except racism. One of the claims that the radio station I focus on in the rock chapter, WMMS, um, makes is that they love the Isley Brothers and they always played them. And this was part of what made WMMS special. And that may very well be true. Certainly this, that station was known for playing Maggot Brain at midnight 
as a tribute to P-Funk, another of these bands trying to cross from the soul and R&B world into the arena rock world. Our challenge is we have to understand that from the perspective of someone booking an arena rock tour, someone programming a radio station, someone deciding who gets the payola money to invest in a particular hit aimed at a particular set of radio DJs. Culture is about brute numbers. It's about stereotypes. It's about assumptions that people are willing to invest in or assumptions that make people shy away from those investments. None of that in any way disparages the importance of the recorded work existing as its own imaginary, its own thing that once it's achieved can be used in ways that go against all of that big brute positioning. That can happen at the level of a particular station, at the level of a particular artist, even at the level of a particular moment in a career. So I think I think what we're what we have to try to do, and it's and it's a kind of writer's trick to pull it off and not easy, is tell the story in a way that's both attentive to the brute force dynamics, but also aware of the exceptions of, of how even a work that in its moment doesn't do everything its creators hope for sometimes creates a lineage that gets picked up down the road. All that stuff, I think, is part of the story as well. Yeah, and, and to add one more layer of complexity onto that is, is again, you do get this, this chicken and egg problem with the, the hierarchies that surround things like formats, where it does seem like, you know... Uh, that, that that clearly like payola works promotion works for you know for record labels and that it is possible to maybe not make something a hit but it's definitely possible to help something become a hit and so you know uh certain kinds of chart successes being able to happen allow other kinds of chart successes to happen it's not you know um it, it's it's the, the relationship between i guess l- formats and their listeners is is co-creating in a very fraught way yeah i mean one of the things that i feel in retrospect i didn't spend enough time on is just how much money the record industry left on the table because of the just utter sexism of the people in the record industry and radio industry that that essentially they did better by certain kinds of artists certain kinds of sounds worse by others. And in a lot of cases, it was not because they were subject to being greedy that they were screwing up. It's because in their moments when they chose to not use that sort of second set of ears and and go with their gut, they were inclined to see things from this skewed perspective. So just just to, 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 to wrap things up, I mean, the, the one, the story that you tell here that, that hit closest to home for me because it, it most reflected, I guess, the, the long durée history of what radio stations I listened to the last time I really spent a lot of time as a teenager listening to radio stations is, is the chapter about the buzzard and about the rise of album-oriented rock um, in the Midwest and the ways in which that both 
the incredible complexities that surround the different kinds of, of groups that this radio station appealed to and didn't appeal to and um, and kind of what it what it did to rock music over that period. So here we have a story that on the surface is a story about class connections being formed between working class Cleveland kids and a somewhat more college oriented rock underground. And the result come the 1970s, say 1975, 76 is a radio station where every Friday at the end of the workday, you would hear Bruce Springsteen born to run and you'd cash out and enter the weekend and blue collar rock as they eventually started calling it was this incredible pushing back against deindustrialization against the tendency of rock to become something aimed almost exclusively at a more cosmopolitan audience just as a parenthetical if you've not watched the movie saturday night fever in a while go back to it and there's a moment where the two central characters these Brooklyn disco dancers, one of whom has a job in Manhattan, so she thinks she's hip, says, I know about David Bowie. Do you know about David Bowie? And John Travolta's character's like, no, not really. Um, so, so the buzzard, which prided itself on playing people like David Bowie and getting Bowie across to the Cleveland dude whose life was going to be a factory job for as long as there was a factory job, the buzzard was this kind of absolutely romantic idea that you could have blue collar rock and fill arenas with it. And in the process, push against the sort of encroaching elitism that eventually would make one version of rock almost like yuppie music and another version of rock almost like, you know, burnout music. It didn't ultimately last forever. The station had its highest ratings in the Michael Jackson era, but it also polarized its audience who were not willing to accept Michael Jackson. And again, we come back to race and why the station that was so gifted at crossing class lines was utterly unable in the end to cross racial lines. There's so many lines and radio programmers make very calculated decisions about which lines they're willing to cross. At the end of the day, the buzzard fell apart, became part of the corporate radio chains. And, you know, even now there's somewhere out there in Cleveland, someone is running a promotion with that image of the buzzard from the 1970s, because it's, it's almost the, the most romantic symbol of Cleveland. It's why Cleveland got the rock and roll hall of fame. Um, it's the, it's the it's the it's at the center of this midwestern notion of rock music and for me when i started this project rock was the enemy for this project it was rockism that i was telling a history to oppose but when i learned the story of wmms and the buzzard i found a kind of peace with this version of rock that was trying till the bitter end to kind of resist rock moving from something that crossed class lines to something that only hardened them. 
And to me, that's yeah. valid. That's interesting. And, and, and it really, it's the most positive spin I've ever heard on AOR, or album-oriented rock. Um, maybe the only positive spin I've ever heard on AOR. Um, <laughs> that's hysterical. But there is. There's this vision where, where the way you kind of catch it out is that by creating, in some ways, a solid aesthetic, which is this kind of guitar-centric rock and a certain promote pre- presentational style... They were able to create an identity, a format identity strong enough to include the Isley Brothers, to include Funkadelic, and that... In carefully calibrated amounts. That's an important thing to add, but yes. And and so that works, but at the same time, in some ways, it's it falls... It's kind of a tragic story. Like, it falls as a f- idea, almost falls under its own contradictions, because as... Eventually, that 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 sturdy definition that allows um, the interpenetration of other things becomes really a straitjacket for rock radio, and then it becomes it means there's very little crossover with other emerging categories and groups of music in a way that really weakens rock as a genre, which is kind of what you lay out in the last chapter. Yeah, I'm not sure that we're at the point yet where we can see what rock was about from a later perspective. Certainly hip hop has supplanted rock in some ways, but I think we're still not to the point where we can understand rock as this sort of exception that somehow tracks to the economic exception of the 1945 to 1973 period of post-war affluence um, and starts to crash when that starts to crash. Um, I can say it in those blunt, broad outlines forms, but filling in all the details, there's a lot more to be done. Um, What I think is absolutely the case is that there is a sense of extra time on rock radio. The songs were longer. They had top 40 chunks to them, but then they had chunks that weren't top 40, that were just jamming or extending. And... In a weird way, that they were they were the rock version of disco. What disco did with dance music, rock radio was doing with guitar music. It was letting time expand. It was pushing against the clock in certain in certain ways. I can I can think about those sorts of specifics, but I haven't yet gotten to where I can confidently take the next step and say, and thus. So. Check in with me in a, in a while. We'll see if I get get any farther. Otherwise, I hope you write the, that book. I mean, I do think that one of the things that you argue really convincingly is that the vision of rock radio, of classic rock radio, that, that kind of solidifies by the 80s, when it hits the 90s, one of the things it does is it, it, it really bifurcates by gender. So you get, you know, mm. you don't get Avril Lavigne on rock radio you Mm. don't get alanis much on rock radio and that that's to the detriment it means it becomes less and less of a broad tent because you've got these strict parameters on it yeah i think what happens is that formats accrue histories because they make a kind of contract with a certain audience they say again and again to a certain audience this format is here for you our listeners and Music changes at whatever pace it changes. Um, It's almost a rock, paper, scissors model. If something is too one thing, it's novel for something else to have different qualities. But the format system has a social compact element to it. 
and you do get locked in to a certain extent. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. Um, the, the book we're talking about is Top 40 Democracy, The Rival Mainstreams of American Music. I would definitely recommend checking it out. There's an entire chapter that will reshape the way you think about Elton John that we didn't even touch on here. So, <laughs> Oops. Um, <laughs> um, Eric, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. I appreciate you being such a strong, interested reader. So thank you. <laughs>